Good evening, and welcome back to All About Ovid. That's all with an O about with an O, Ovid with an O. My name is B. Peterson, I'm your host, and once again with me as always is... Uh, I'm, I'm Whitney Seibold, I'm the other host, I'm the co-host. <laughs> I'm, I'm the other avid Ovid watcher. Oh my word, avid Ovid? <laughs> There's an idea. Av- avid for There's Ovid, there you go. I'm an avid Ovid watcher. <laughs> Perfect. That's the, there we go. The, okay, I think we're okay. So for, first, first of all, um, you if you're if you follow the screens margins, then um, then you know um, this will be released on Saturday, I believe, which will be the third. Um, but um, so if 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 you're listening to all our stuff, then you know that all of our Patreon stuff is starting to come to the main feed. Uh, today, as we're recording this, the first episode of Dance Dorothy Dance, which was recorded back in January, um, was released onto the main feed. It was a trip listening to that because I had no clue what I was talking about back in January. I had no idea who Dorothy Arzner was. Uh, listening to it now that I've like seen every single thing she's done that still exists is um, yeah it's anyway so it's I don't totally stand by everything I said like a lot of my observations like oh you child um, <laughs> but but anyway um, all of our stuff is, is coming to the main feed uh, because uh, the screen's margins essentially has an end date now it's September 30th um, all of our stuff is coming to the main feed because uh, it's that's just the way it's gonna be um, and um, anyway I've now forgotten uh, the, the oh that's right because but the thing is, is that Ovid, I still want to continue with, with you, Whitney. And so there will be future updates um, regarding all about Ovid, though it might go through somewhat of a rebranding. And um, Avid, I think we need to fit Avid for Ovid or something <laughs> something in, in that kind realm of, for maybe a new title. I accidentally stumbled <laughs> upon the, the new title for the show. Because as, as has been pointed out... Uh, all about Ovid spelled with all O's is something people aren't going to Google by accident. And, uh, it's right. And I kind of knew that going in. Um, but, uh, but I was like, you know what, who cares? It's such a great title. Um, but then, and then, uh, we had Dave White on our show and he plugged our show, um, on his show, Linoleum Knife. Mm. Um, and, and they, and he like plugged the podcast and then they started to do their outro. And then Dave White was like, hold on, hold on, wait a second. You guys, if you're looking for all about Ovid, you have to spell it with all O's. And Alonzo was like, what? <laughs> and, like, and Dave's like, yeah, I know. And it's like, and Alonzo's like, that is the most ungoogleable podcast ever. And, I, and I'm like, yes, yes, it is. So, but, but let's do anyway. it anyway. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So who, so yeah, this podcast has has a future though it might not be uh, uh, as is. Um, at the top of the podcast, Whitney, I've got uh, something that I'd I'd like you to be witness to. Okay. Um, so before we get to today's films, and it is July first, which means um, it's still Pride Month because who cares? Um, we're going to talk about a bunch of queer cinema today. Um, but um, but before all that, I need I need you to be witness to something. So w- one year ago this month, I began I began collecting physical media, and I did that uh, because of the July Barnes and Noble Criterion sale. That's right. And and I now have, um, as of today, one hundred uh, items. 
Oh, um, my God. So quite, in one year, quite a milestone. One, right. Um, and I filled one bookcase um, with with stuff and out of all the stuff that I've that I've gotten I'm probably uh, if I had to pick favorites um, if it was a single film then I'd probably choose uh, Hubo's An Elephant Sitting Still my Blu-ray of that ooh nice okay um, which is a film that is on Ovid and should this podcast continue until December I would like us to revisit that film then oh absolutely I love um, that movie right exactly but if I were to pick like the two, the, the things that I'm most proud of um, over here, um, I have. Well, first of all, I have the Agnes Varda Criterion box set, which is just magical. Of course. Um, but also, and this is again, we have a Dorothy Arzner podcast um, on the screen's margins, and I have assembled the com- the quote unquote complete films of Dorothy Arzner. Oh my uh, goodness! Mark and I built these these uh this box set ourselves this two volume box set with oh i love it the, all, every surviving uh feature film of dorothy arzner's um oh, that, that's and yeah always this is fun. easily oh, the most man. expensive thing i've ever like <laughs> this is easily the most expensive item uh out of all of our all of my mm. physical media purchases well because you, um, you i imagine you had to pay a lot to like download and then well, burn right, and all because, of the tech to make that sort of thing well, I mean, so well for one, it was um, it was twenty bucks just for these gorgeous uh, uh, eight disc cases. Oh my gosh! Uh, okay, um, it was twenty bucks for that. But then there's two Criterion Blu-rays in here because Criterion does have editions for "Merrily We Go to Hell" and "Dance Girl Dance." Mm-hmm. Um, there are some burn-on-demand uh, DVDs for like the Warner Archive. Yeah, yeah. Um, but most of them, I mean, they don't have official. Uh, uh, physical releases yeah and so we had to get essentially like dvdrs um I, whether they were public domain a lot of them aren't and it's just kind of like rips from like literally uh our copy of working girls which is her i which is which was never even got a national release back in 1931 um we got a a it's a DVD-R rip of a VHS rip of a 16 millimeter archive print that played on the TV in the 80s. Um, oh gosh! So like, this... And that one—it's—I mean—it's a—it's a really good movie. Mm. Um, but the copy that we have is like you can technically make out what's going on, but not much more. Uh, than yeah. That—that um, um, that happened with uh, with. Um... My uh, other podcast co-host William, uh, we had we have an Oscar podcast. We had to watch that film, The White Parade, right. uh, and mm-hmm. the only the only copy of The White Parade we could find uh, was at the UCLA archive, and right. they had and so they would give you a DVD which they made from their sixteen millimeter print. They're not going to project their sixteen millimeter print. But right. uh, they left in, like, the heads and tails of all of the reels, so you got to see it run out for mm-hmm. a second. There'd be, like, a full maybe, like, 20 to 50 seconds of black uh, just hanging mm-hmm. out there in the middle. And, yeah, because it was a a rip, you could barely make out what was going on on the screen. Right. Um, like, on our DVD for First Comes Courage, um, her final film, that was from a I, I believe like a just it was on television and like maybe tcm or something like that and that the print that they used had like 50 bajillion q marks on every single reel oh god um <laughs> anyway so but regardless that's that's not what i'm getting at you should listen to our dorothy arzner podcast that i do with mark edward hoik 
um it's one of the great achievements i think that mm. I've, I've that i've done but anyway criterion barnes and noble sales where i got my start and not a bad so place just, to start right and this year i decided that i was going to be a bit more sparing with my purchases because the first time around i got like maybe 10 different items during the sale this time it's only two um i'm gonna i've put it in an order for the mirror the their their new release of mirror andre tarkovsky's mm-hmm. 1975 film Okay. Which is a film that I love, but if you want to watch it, I highly recommend before seeing it, one, knowing that this is going to be an experimental film, not a narrative. Yeah. Um, and two, read the entire Wikipedia breakdown of everything that happens in the movie before you watch it, because <laughs> then you will be able to understand it while you watch it. Um, because the first time I saw it, I just went in thinking it would be a narrative. I hated it. I read the Wikipedia page and then I was like, oh, wait, I love this movie. Um, yeah. Because I was yeah. actually able to grasp what was going on. But anyway, one, what, that's going to be one of my purchases. But the other, I'd like you to bear witness to this, Whitney. So this is my one su- souvenir that I picked up while in uh, L.A. I recognize that tote video. bag. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's the Agnes Varda tote bag. And inside it, is what I went and picked up from Barnes & Noble this morning. It's been sitting in our Barnes & Noble for a year, and no one's purchased it. But now I have. <gasps> you got the Bergman box! Oh my gosh. I got the Bergman box. Oh, that is such a... That that was something, like, it. they announced it, I started salivating immediately, and it, it took me a while to pick it up just because it's so bloody expensive. But uh, mm. oh gosh, that there's yeah. 39 Bergman films in there, and that is that is great. Mm. That is great. And that's not even touching the special features. Yeah, oh. uh, and I, I appreciate about that box set is they uh, they curated it specially. Like it's not just a bland mm. chronological setup. They're actually like hey. two fil- <laughs> two films on each. Di- well, I mean. You know what I mean. Uh, there's two films on each disc, yeah, and they, like, they kind of... I adore the Arzner box sets chronological, you... <laughs> it, yeah, no, it's it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. That, that, that is a way to organize things, no, I and I think a lot of people are they comfortable with that. They did the same thing that. with the Agnes Varda box set. Yeah, but I, I appreciate that they actually took a, a slightly different approach with the Bergman box set and tried to pair the films uh, thematically. Uh, oh, gosh, it looks so good up there. <laughs> should get a little yeah, spot lamp just for that on, that bookshelf. Yeah, like, it doesn't fit on any of my shelves for actual physical media, but it just perfectly fits on my bookshelf <laughs> um, for my books. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I, I don't know anybody who has seen every single one of Bergman's films, so I imagine you get to uh, uh, work your way through his filmography. Uh, right. And, 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 and make new discoveries. And it doesn't have his entire filmography on this box box set, actually. Uh, um, there, it's missing nine of his features. Uh, nine of his features, but 39 is a good start, I think. Uh, yes. The, 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 this is not... It's it's not like you're, you're, you have these gigantic holes in his filmography. You actually get pretty much... And you get the big significant ones, too. It's not like you're missing The Seventh Seal or Persona or, or Cries and Whispers or any of the no. big ones. Yeah, and and I actually one one final you know topic of conversation before we get to the Ovid stuff, you know the stuff you're here for, <laughs> um, is um, 
is I wanted to just talk to you because I've seen a handful of Bergman films, and it's a lot, and it's basically uh, several of the big ones. I've seen mm-hmm. Persona, obviously. Okay. Um, I had already purchased last year a cop, uh, uh, the Persona, like the individual Blu-ray, yeah, uh, Criterion Blu-ray for Persona, and now I guess I have a duplicate. Um, but, um, but I've seen Persona. I've seen um, an Autumn Sonata. I watched that for the My Dinner with Andre podcast that I did for you guys um, mm. because that film is is name checked in that movie, right? Um, and I've seen The Seventh Seal, and I've seen Cries and Whispers. And okay. and I just want to talk to you a little bit about Cries and Whispers. It sounds good. Um, because I know you adore that film. I'm I'm a, a big fan of Cries and Whispers. Yes, right. And I and I just wanted to talk. To you. I th- I think I mailed you a letter about or sent you a, uh, an email about this last year during my 100 letters um, thing. But I I did one email about Cries and Whispers just because when I saw that film for the first time, I was actually a little put off by how it it basically tried to make essentially like all suicidal ideation because it's that's not it's one of the main it's, it's about the death of a woman by cancer yes and how that affects her family um and my issue was any of that but one of the sisters i believe it's sisters um is dealing with like very deep depression and suicidal ideation and my thing with it, with that movie is it was almost treating it almost like it was like not glorifying it, but rom- but maybe romanticizing and, mm. and delving in like this how artfully because it is shot so gorgeously. It's yeah, it's and Sen Nickvist who shot uh, all of well, not all, like most of Ingmar Bergman's films. Yeah, just really pulled out right. all the stops for that one. Yeah, and it just and it's something about that like because it, it's shot so gorgeously, almost maybe to a fault for me because it was. It was seeming like it was almost romanticizing this woman's depression mm. and almost in a sort of maybe to put a more contemporary comparison, almost in a sort of Lars von Trier way where mm. um, and and Lars von Trier has done this well and poorly. I think I think he did it well in Melancholia. I think he I I think he goes too far in a lot of other films um, like something like but, Antichrist, perhaps. Right. Uh, exactly. Um but anyway, I was just wondering because, like, do you do you think that that Cries and Whispers is romanticizing like depression uh, and suicidal ideation? Well, when you look at the works of uh, Ingmar Bergman, he's clearly gone through depression. Uh, right. Actually, uh, let, let's compare Ingmar Bergman to Lars von Trier. They've both gone through depression. Lars von Trier is a much more uh, aggressive filmmaker. And he, uh, when he, so when he's going to talk about depression, he wants to really be uh, aggressive about it, and he wants to be confrontational about it, and he wants to uh, sort of make the sadness look as harrowing as possible, and that right. way the audience really feels it. You look at someone like Ingmar Bergman; he's a much more gentle filmmaker, and I would say he's a much more gentle person, uh, and he is far more interested in 
uh, not sort of the the aggression of depression, but kind of the realities of it. Uh, but he's also a theatrical man. He worked in theater. He, and so what he's not doing, he's not really romanticizing sadness or suicidal ideation, but he is aestheticizing it. He's making he's making it into something that is palatable in an art form. And you could say in so doing that on any level is making it seem a little too pretty and not realistic enough. But I don't see anything in something like Cries and Whispers where he's being exploitative. I don't think he is trying to okay. trying to make uh, suicide or depression seem like an artistic act. That's not his mo. Okay. Um, he, but he does set his, uh, especially cries and whispers, is set in this really stylized world where all the interiors are very very red and the you know the dresses are white and he. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's like he's in this abstract place and when he's dealing with. Uh, suicide and and depression in this aesthetic interior he is actually creating something um a little bit more emotionally honest even though it doesn't resemble the real world version of those things if that makes any sense um i can accuse lars von trier of being uh sensationalistic because that that's his mo he wants to shove it in your mm. face, and I think he wants to be a little bit shocking about it, and wants to make things like depression and uh, self-harm seem like uh, exploitation movie violence. Uh, that's that's his mm-hmm. equivalent, and you know, I, you know, these are both legitimate ways to approach those feelings. Everybody's going to be processing those sorts of feelings in different ways. And you know, Lars von Trier and, and Ingmar Bergman are very different artists, but uh, I, I, I don't sense any kind of exploitation from Bergman. I feel he's just going for something very honest. That That's my take. Right. Yeah. And and I'm looking forward to rewatching it and mm-hmm. seeing if my position on that film changes, because the, the, the first time it was like, oh, I'm not sure how I feel about this. I, and yeah. um, that and... So, but anyway, I'm, yeah, I will be probably slowly going through this thing over, yeah, yeah. over the next few months, and I'm looking forward to it. Um, but anyway, you're here to talk about Ovid. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we're 15 minutes into the podcast. Let's get to the point. Um, uh, yeah, let's talk about Ovid. Um, uh, I, uh, we were What's able- Ovid, by the way? Uh, Ovid is a wonderful streaming service. Uh, it's a streaming service that carries all of the uh, really deep cut art house movies that played at museums and stuff. The stuff that's even too arch and arty for the Criterion Collection. Although there is a little bit of crossover. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going to be talking about a little bit of crossover with the Criterion Collection uh, this week because I was able to see... Uh, some of the films of Marlon Riggs, which you had recommended on our last episode, uh, as well as the film So Pretty. Uh, Marlon Riggs is about to have a Criterion Edition Blu-ray box set. So uh, we get to uh, talk about some of the movies that are a- both on Ovid and will soon be on a Criterion Blu-ray. Right. Uh, all right. So we're going to be talking about So Pretty and uh, four films from Marlon Riggs today. Talked about four last week. We're going to be talking about one of them again and then another three. Um, why don't we start with the film we started with last week? Why don't we start with So Pretty, which you saw uh, this time around? Yes. Um, yeah. To, to recap, this is the Jesse Jeffrey Dunn Ravinelli uh, drama. 
uh, So Pretty came out in 2019. Uh, and this is, this film is kind of miraculous in a lot of ways. Um, this Isn't is, it? it it's, yeah, so, so we did talk about it on, on the last episode, but uh, to, to sort of give you a brief recap, this is uh, takes place in uh, in Brooklyn uh, among a group of essentially this, like, it's like a polyamorous enclave where people just sort of live together and they converse and they have breakfast. They hang out and they bathe together. Uh, there's a, a lot of just sort of casual nudity in the apartment. and uh, But it's not in sort of this hippie commune. It's actually very, very much more gentle and loving than uh, something that feels so uh, more like aggressively pointed than some of the free love films of the past that I might have seen. It's tender is the word that I think that I'd use. It's incredibly tender. It's incredibly warm. It's incredibly empathetic. It is uh, revolutionary in how compassionate and open it is. Um this is, uh, yeah, uh, it's Jesse Jeffrey Dunn uh, Rovanelli is uh, one of these people. Uh, Idem Dela Shacy, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is in there. Thomas Love, uh, Rachika Samarth are all, all part of this enclave, uh, which is real. It's kind of, it's semi-documentary uh, style. And all of these people are just sort of openly loving one another and appreciating each other's emotional states and listening to each other speak. Although what they actually say is less significant than the fact that they get to say it. If that makes any Mm -hmm. sense that, that they are being listened to by the people around them is more important than us, the audience being able to listen to what they're saying, uh, which I think makes it a lot more a, com- a much more compassionate film. It's not performative. It feels a lot more honest in that. And all of the characters are uh, uh, trans or non-binary as well. And this is the first film I've seen that actually ob- observes in a non-exploitational way trans bodies. Uh, where it mm-hmm. lets trans people have their trans bodies and be comfortable in front of one another. And we get to see that and also be comfortable with it. It's not trying to sensationalize it in any kind of way. Um, there was a film that came out a couple of years ago. I think it was just called Girl. And uh, that, will got, oh, uh, that, that movie, movie got a lot of guff at the time. A lot of critics uh, really highly criticized it. Because it was trying to capture, like, a particular kind of trans experience and just failed miserably. It was all about, you know, these really kind of... It was uh, torturous. Yeah. It, it was and porn, essentially. It was more like, it was like, let's watch this person suffer kind of kind of a movie. And um, So Pretty uh, is just... Li- not even like looking or ogling or staring or 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 observing. It's just sort of being there, existing there with trans people with and and non-binary people and these people who queer gender lines and understanding that we can see them and we can see that they're beautiful and let them live. And it's just such such a beautiful revolutionary experience. I've I've never seen anything quite like it. I'm so glad that I was able to see this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, in terms of, uh, trans cinema that I can recommend, uh, Isabel Sandoval's films, 
Lingua Franca is on Netflix. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, from Array, uh, Ava DuVernay's um, production company. Um, I highly recommend that. She also had. She also did a Mew Mew uh, uh, short um, that came out this year called Shangri La, which is one of my favorite mm-hmm. films of this year. And so far, and her films, I think, have a lot of that same quality. Um, they're different in style than So Pretty, but um, but that they have that same sort of empathy um, that is present here with uh, uh, Jesse Jeffries' uh, uh, film. And she, by the way, um, last in the last episode, I referred to her using they them pronouns because I wasn't really sure. Um, she was actually kind enough to reach out after we uploaded that oh. episode, just like, "Hey, by the way, I use she/her pronouns." And okay. So I was like, "Cool, I will, I will <laughs> make this. I will make a cons- I will let everyone know. Um, on because we're gonna be talking about your film again because we need to both see this movie. <laughs> if, if if you're listening, I love your movie. Uh, I think it's wonderful. I I think it's <laughs> it's it's gentle and empathetic in a way that uh, films rarely are. Uh, and and especially right. uh, films about sex and sexuality and relationships, which tend to be a little mm-hmm. bit more um, either operatic in their emotion or a little bit more melodramatic in their emotion. And this one is a lot more um, j- just being. There's something very zen about it, about sitting and right. and observing, and not and not, camera- and not judging. Yeah. The, the camera work is still and smooth and mm. it's yeah and uh something that i didn't mention last time that i that i wanted to is that the score for this film i really really loved this this pulsating uh music that was used throughout um one of the characters is a musician mm-hmm. um and i loved listening to their music um and yeah no i was just i Again, like I, I, I said it last time, is that this this movie's great, and and everyone should see it. Um, this film that yeah exhibits a a it's not a male gaze, it's not a female gaze, it's mm. a queer gaze. Everyone is a subject, and no one is an object. And it's why aren't all movies this way? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, um, and then just I was just curious what how you how you found the the literary aspect of this movie, how it played with this this novel that was being adapted, and anyway, I was just wondering if you had any thought thoughts about that. Um, um, I think um, the only thing I can really speak to is actually sort of in a, a broad abstract in, ter- in like my experience with literary history. But uh, let's look at the word utopia for a minute. Uh, you know, that goes all the mm-hmm. way back to... Let me look up the dates on utopia. It was uh, of, um, the, the, Sir Thomas, the Thomas More Plato? book. No, Thomas More. Uh, Plato is the oh, Republic. Okay. Uh, Sir Thomas More uh, wrote Utopia in, like, the late 1700s. And um, uh, he, uh, he was essentially trying to imagine... Uh, or excuse me, Utopia was, sorry, um, I was thinking of Sir Thomas More. Uh, Thomas More, who wrote Utopia, was like late uh, 15th century. And he wrote uh, Utopia in like the early 1500s. And uh, Utopia was essentially trying to uh, imagine a perfect world. You know, we, we use the word Utopia, but if you look at the actual 
uh, direct translation of the word he used. Utopia is essentially like imaginary world or world that cannot mm-hmm. exist. So it was essentially just uh, not something to aspire to, but something to, to dream about, to keep us motivated. And I feel like so pretty, uh, they <clears throat> could be called a utopia. This is sort of like a free love enclave where the world is kind of perfect. So I think in uh, adapting this German novel, they're seeing all these parallels. It's just, be- I think it's just sort of a declaration that what they might have tapped into was the kind of utopia that has been written about in literature for centuries. And uh, what they have is 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 working. It's a very optimistic film. Yeah. Yeah, no. Mm. It's, it's, it's a good movie. I like it's, it. It's good. It's good. Uh, <laughs> um, so... All right. From there, uh, the rest of what we got is is all Marlon Riggs, and yeah, as you said, uh, the Marlon Riggs box set. Um, it's actually already out. It came out um, at the end, uh, towards the end of June. Um, you can get it. Um, I've I've now that I've seen all the stuff, I'm I'm debating about whether I'm gonna get it. And since you know, I just purchased the Bergman box set, I'm not gonna be shilling out much more money. Uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a pricey one. At least at least this month. Um, but, um, but anyway, but I, I recommend that, I mean, the stuff's on Ovid, so you could see it on Ovid. And then if you want to, um, yeah, go get that Criterion box set. Cause it's, mm-hmm. it's probably going to have some good special features, all that jazz. But anyway, I think what I'll talk about now, um, is the film on here that you haven't seen. Okay. And then we can go through the rest of the stuff that you have. So I'm going to talk about Tongues Untied. Um, Tongues Untied, um, I think might be his most most maybe not most well known but most well regarded um tongues untied is his 1989 film that is an experimental documentary essentially about himself um and his own journey of shame and overcoming shame and uh learning to love that learning learning that black men could love black men Mm. um and it's it is it it i think it's a lot i think it's very much the key to his entire filmography because um because i saw uh, uh when we talked about it last time i had seen affirmations and anthem um and those are two short films that he made in like 1990 1991 and this film is almost essentially like those two films are almost like uh, uh, they could serve as like excerpts from Tongues Untied. Like they're expanding on smaller concepts that we see in Tongues Untied. Um, we, yeah, we, we see Marlon Riggs um, tell the story of, of his upbringing. Alongside that, he's telling the story of essentially queer, the black gay uh, uh, community that he is um, a part of. They, there's a sequence where they talk about snaps um, <laughs> and how those function. Um, and and that way, it's just this fascinating document of, you know, queer culture in late 80s, early 90s um, in a way that, that I'm not familiar with because I'm familiar with the queer culture of the 2010s. Um, and, and it's, yeah, and Marlon Riggs has this, lovely sense uh he his his movies are edited 
blissfully the way that he uses overlap like chants um people like multiple people saying the same line of dialogue over and over and over again uh this happens again and we'll talk about when we get to black is black ain't that is another element of that film Mm -hmm. um but his stylistic elements are just so freeing he also talks about um how when he grew up he fell in love with a white man and eventually he became essentially like he became ashamed of like loving black men. Um, and it was because of, you know, ingrained racism and the images that we see, um, even within the gay culture about the racism that is lies within that. Mm. And so there's, there's, there's threads of examining media in the same way that, uh, uh, ethnic notions did and color adjustment would do, um, there's and there's the autobiographical sense in the same way that, in something that we would later see in Black Is Black Ain't, and there is the um, just free, just pure expression through through montage um, that that we'd see in something like Anthem, and so it, it's it is this. I think out of all the films of his, now that I've seen them all, mm. um, that I think it is maybe his the the thing that sits on top of all of them is like this is this is the thing mm. it's um on a just unabashedly uh, uh cutting and 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 also tender and compassionate but and hilarious and scary mm. and it's all of these things and at once and it's beautiful and yeah so tongues untied i i I'm, it's the one that I saw uh, uh, essentially two weeks ago um, because we didn't have an episode last week, um, and so it's the one that's uh, it's the, it's the longest since I've seen that one, and so I'm struggling to come up with like a lot of specifics. But just broadly speaking, it is just a beautiful, beautiful exploration of of a man and also of of this world around him. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, tongues untied. Um, this was one of the movies that um, in the '90s. Uh, you may recall, I think we, we might have brought this up. I don't think we actually did brought this up when we talked about Cheryl Denier, how the Watermelon Woman, um, it was partially funded by the National Endowment for the Arts. I, I, and yeah. Congress Congress in the 90s basically was like, can you believe what the arts is funding? Look at all of this this queer stuff. They, they cited the Watermelon Woman as like, look at this, it's about a black lesbian? This is disgusting, outrageous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think Tongues Untied was another one of those films that they cited as look at what public art funding yeah. is, is how it's demoralizing our society, uh, um, de- demoralizing straight whites uh, prudes. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, um, so so yeah, so Tongues Untied. See it mm. just to spite those congressmen. <laughs> um, see it to spite the congressmen now. <laughs> yeah, seriously, <laughs> congressmen now. Well, and, and also to uh, understand uh, Marlon Riggs and how Marlon Riggs has been uh, has been very interested in the way uh, media specifically has been used to uh, dictate the African American diaspora uh, throughout his life, mm-hmm. and how he was very interested in using media and manipulating media to explore his own notions of identity. Yeah. Um... That serves as a great segue into color adjustment, but before we get to color adjustment, um, I just want to hear your thoughts on Anthem. 
because that's his eight oh. minute short from ninety one. Um, yeah, it's it, it's a short uh, montage film. It's just a bunch of uh, you know, uh, uh, there's no like story or arc of in a conventional sort of way. You might be able to interpret one, but uh, it's it's essentially just um, displaying a lot of. Uh, images of African-American men uh, and how uh, he's using a lot of these sort of uh, clips and images to bring forth a lot of the sexual uh, sexuality and the homoeroticism uh, against mm. things like, uh, you know, the the national anthem and a lot of like American flag images and uh, images of a lot of really, quote, you know, corny uh patriotic images and he's sort of throwing it back right. in your face and he made this in the early 90s which is right at the tail end of of the reagan era i'd say i say there's still a lot of reagan right. hanging out in this movie and he's sort of mm-hmm. trying to um break out of a certain kind of uh repression that the, that he had just sort of uh lived through um right it it feels very. It's like a modern uh, video shot version of um, uh, um, Cocteau to me, uh, Jean Cocteau. Uh, where, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, yeah. if if you've seen uh, a early Jean Cocteau movie, if you've seen the movie The uh, The Blood of a Poet, which is one he made it right, in, which like, I finally saw this uh, this past month because they put it out on the Criterion Channel. Oh, great! Yeah, I I got the the. Orphic trilogy box set uh, on DVD right, back in the day. That's out of print now, so uh, so I, I can I can wave that around and, and be smug about it. But uh, yeah, Blood of a Poet has that very similar surrealist vibe. He's not going for like any kind of traditional narrative, and there is uh, that thing's just dripping with queer imagery. There's like an angel who shows that's like very queer angel who shows up in it as a guide to the Cocteau character, and. Uh, Right. And I feel like that's sort of what uh, Marlon Riggs is doing. He's using these media images to create a little uh, more or less you know, montage slash surreal uh, short where he is aggressively deconstructing a lot of traditional images and uh, deliberately queering them. And uh, I think what Mar- Marlon Riggs... He was making a film in the 1990s, not the 1930s, so uh, he is freer to be a lot more open about it. And I feel like uh, he is able to use art to uh, very bash down a lot of these, like, wicked political things that were going on out in the world during the Reagan era. All this, like, anti-gay sentiment and all this racist sentiment that he's finally, uh, he gets to confront. Yeah, um, there's a poem that is... uh, uh spoken throughout this film by uh, Jack Vincent, who was Marlon Riggs' partner mm. um, and appears throughout most of his films. Um, and um, yeah, and I just, that poem, I wish, like, I am I might go back, rewatch it, write, like, transcribe the poem and then, like, just, like, mm. put it up and, like, frame it on my wall or something. Um, because it is a just a beautiful queer anthem that is, anyway, yeah, anthems, anthems great. Um from there, why don't we move on uh, to the film that I really wanted you to see because of another podcast you do. <laughs> um, and and I think you know what I'm talking about. So let's talk about Color Adjustment. Okay. Um, Color Adjustment is uh, Marlon Riggs' 1991 film uh, feature. 
and it was a documentary uh, made for, I believe it was PBS, um, but he made it. He made it for public television. And um, let's see here, color adjustment. Yes, a second film to air on PBS television. Um, I believe the first was uh, Ethnic Notions. Okay. Um, and let's see here. Yeah. Um, yeah, and 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 this film almost serves as a sort of sequel to Ethnic Notions. When in that Ethnic Notions, we talked about it, or I talked about it on the last episode of All About Ovid. Um, that it it almost in Ethnic Notions is about the way that media and imagery was used to essentially an exploration of the various stereotypes of of black and African American people and how those evolved over time to that they tried to show that um that that black people that enslaved people were docile and happy and then as soon as the civil war happened they tried to show them as af- and after they gained emancipation they tried the imagery shifted to show them as violent and uncontrollable um, because whatever the whatever imagery they needed to meet their racist ends, they would they would just proliferate mm-hmm. that. And in this way, and in this film, it's almost the evolution of that is like how did that translate into television? Um, because at the beginning of television, we still had um, some. Uh, uh, shades of minstrelsy going on. Uh, mm-hmm. This is if, uh, they talk about uh, the show Amos and Andy, um, and how that was essentially they stopped they when it shifted from radio to TV they started they stopped using white actors doing voices, mm-hmm. um, and they gave it to black actors, but who were still reenacting all of these harmful stereotypes and basically how that evolved to stuff like um it it moves all the way up until the late 80s so stuff like the cosby show um and shows how the over time as representation increased how there was still always some issues with those portrayals how they were still falling back on stereotypes and but also showing the progress that was made um I found this to be incredibly informative because television is something I don't know a lot about, specifically failed television, but it's something that you know quite a bit about. <laughs> yeah, the, there were some shows that uh, that Marlon Riggs was mentioning in Color Adjustment that I, I had to like look up and put on a list immediately so we can start talking right. about on a podcast we do on, uh, called Cancel Too Soon, just so we can examine these things a little bit more closely. Uh yeah, I, I, I appreciate um, that Marlon Riggs is doing uh, a media study and showing how um, what representation actually means and not not just having it, but having it done correctly and accurately and also how difficult it is to do it correctly and accurately because when mm-hmm. advances are made in one concept, it means they're falling behind in other concepts. We can show... Uh, black people as being successful middle-class people but uh, at the same time that's sort of denying their experience because there's a lot of impoverished black people but if you show just impoverished black people you are essentially turning them into more or less poverty porn and uh, you know where's where's the balance what can we do to accurately depict this and of course 
he also says that there isn't a singular black experience. Not a, and this is something he's going to talk about a lot in Black is Black Ain't, about how there right. is there isn't going to be a singular black experience for all black people. So trying to rely on our media for a singular accurate portrayal of an entire uh, an, an entire group is going to be st- sticky at best. Um, I I really really love color adjustment. I love how how smart it is. How uh how they're like really delving into some of the more important concepts. It's not just and here's what happened in TV history. They're actually talking about it as right. they go along, and um, what I found most eye opening is. Uh, and this is something I, I I encounter a lot as a critic uh, is this notion that you know if if you're watching a piece of popular entertainment and you you review it and you start bringing in new angles and you start criticizing it on on a, a political view, there's going to be a, a contingent of people on Twitter.com who come after you for politicizing <laughs> a popular entertainment. Uh, you know how dare right. you how dare you bring politics into popular entertainment? Entertainment is just entertainment. And when I was watching Color Adjustment, they pointed out that, uh, especially during the 1960s, when there was, uh, you know, a, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of advances and a lot of racism just sort of outside of the door, uh, and then you'd go inside and you'd turn on the television and you'd see sort of this placid version of what the American family was. TV came up in the 1950s. And they point out that in the 1950s, during the baby boom, right after the war, uh, was sort of a time when we were meant to celebrate an America that was finally at peace. This was going to be ideal America. And as such, a lot of the shows were very family, uh, depicted families at in like suburban homes, showing them what the ideal American life ought to look like. And I feel like we're still living with that today. And this idea mm-hmm. that you can turn on the TV, see this idealized version of the world it's sort of designed to shut and you know, of course in those 1950s shows what does the ideal family look like but a white family it's never an idealized mm-hmm. black and they're also middle class it's a white middle class family is sort of the ideal image of what an american family ought to look like on 1950s television and nuclear by the way and straight mm, yeah nu- <laughs> nuclear straight family uh one mom one dad two and a half children nice home uh good paint job everybody's got a car you're getting groceries and you're buying new uh appliances the war is over we can do this and you now. have a maid and and yeah and you have a maid and oh golly that maid isn't white uh the uh, the idea that you're supposed to shut out the real world and go into this idealized version of things is a concept that we're still butting heads with today. That you're supposed right. to be able to... How dare le- you say that Star Wars is uh, political? You know, it, yeah, it doesn't, well, not like it has wars in the title or anything. Well, more than that, going into Star Wars and thinking that it's supposed to transport you away. This idea that entertainment is just escapism is itself a political notion because it's that escape is into an idealized world. And I feel like uh, Marlon Riggs is pointing out that that escapism also comes with it uh, a note of white supremacy, that in trying to escape the troubles of the actual world, you are pushing out the races that aren't being depicted, and that is black people in the 1950s. And when you start uh, putting black people on television uh, in the ensuing decades, 
it's a particular version of black people that is meant to appeal to a white audience. And uh, I, I appreciate that they actually uh, took some white TV producers on camera to task for their thinking about black characters and their depiction of black characters. Some of them were uh, very forward thinking about it. Some of them were stuck in some pretty old attitudes about you know right. making these shows specifically for white audiences in mind. Um, there is one particular producer um, who uh, was who was an instrumental in the creation of a show called Good Times, which showed a essential like a full uh, uh, family unit. Like the father was in the picture, which originally wasn't going to be the case until uh the lead of the show i'm blanking on her name forgive me um basically said no i'm gonna have a husband these kids are gonna have a father yeah and yeah. so in one way it was a that was... G- great step forward and the producer mm. then admits that yeah with that one character though we were still playing into a lot of the old stereotypes um and so we we screwed up mm. on that and so it was yeah. cool to see you know some of them come clean about it have you seen spike lee's film bamboozled that's one of the few that I haven't seen yet. Okay, um, um, I it's it's one I've been meaning to get to yeah, since I, I started like been going through all of his filmography. Yeah, now that you've seen Color Adjustment, um, I would highly recommend that you watch Bamboozled because that's a film that also is uh, a media criticism and how uh, media and entertainment has been used sometimes very actively, sometimes unwittingly, as a tool of repression. Uh, the the plot right. of the plot of the movie is um, a, a TV producer is tired of this sort of whitewashing of of television that he's been working in. There's always like a token black character or even a single token black show, but for the most part, it's just a white audience in mind. All the writers are white, so he wants, but he can't mm-hmm. quit because of some weird contract thing. So he's trying to be fired. He tries to come up with the most awful egregious producers like show he can come up with and he comes up with like uh, an early 20th century minstrel show like with blackface and everything that he's going to put on primetime television (laughs) in the year 2000 and of course the big irony is that he puts it on tv and it becomes a big hit and uh and so now Uh, it's yeah (laughs) look at spike lee he's not gonna work subtly (laughs) Right, right. Uh, but yeah, and throughout that movie, they show a lot of uh, clips of the media that led up to this and where we get all these images from and where all the cliches come from. It's it's really, really good. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so for this, um, I just want to point out, it's the, the elephant in the room, if you will. Um, they talk about the Cosby show towards the end of this. Um, mm. And, um, and I, was, I was afraid... Um, and I don't know, it was Marlon Riggs. I shouldn't have been afraid. Um, but I was afraid that they were going to, you know, cause they were getting towards the end of the film and they were finally like, look at, we finally have something that is like what we want. And they take that one to task too. Is like, see, it still has that. It has the Reagan era is like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Yeah. Um, that it's like, if you just work hard enough, then you'll be able to get this just like Bill Cosby has. And, um, just, I just want to take this opportunity to say, screw Bill Cosby. Screw you. You're the worst. Nobody likes as, you. You're the worst. As, as, as we were recording this, there was some, uh, some Bill Cosby news just recently, and um, it, it, just, it just makes my heart hurt. Um, but I, I, yeah. I, I appreciate, though, because um, 
you know, I, I grew up watching the, the Cosby show. It was actually on in our house on the regular. Okay. And, and see, uh, see, I, and I didn't, mm-hmm. I actually never knew who he was. Uh, like the first time I heard about him, it's because he was playing a show in Tri-Cities where I live. Mm-hmm. The second time I heard about him, it was because 52 women had accused him uh, yeah. uh, of of sexual assault. Mm-hmm. And so I never really got in. I, I never really had any bearing like for who he was until until I heard him in this context of sexual assault. So I, I have a, it's a different experience. Yeah. Um- we uh yeah we grew up in my household watching the cosby show and uh, all of the the criticism and all the essays uh one would read about the cosby show was typically very very positive because it was about an upper upper middle class or upper class black family on television which was really really rare and uh you know bill cosby was the creator of the show it's named after him and uh yeah he uh w- was very careful to, uh, you know, try to depict uh, not the black experience, but a black experience where wealth was possible and just sort of a natural mm-hmm. part of the world. And and that was considered a very, very positive thing at the time. Uh, and what I appreciate about color adjustment is it actually takes the Cosby show to task in the early 90s when it was still pretty widely accepted. Huge. Yeah, it was, it was huge and widely accepted as just this great show for uh, not being very careful about its representation. And I, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, my main takeaway from Color Adjustment is this. Um, you and William need to track down the following three shows. Um, the Nat King Cole show, yes. which was canceled after one season. East Side, West Side, which was canceled after one season. And Frank's Place, which was no. canceled after one season. Y'all need to do all three of those shows on Cancel Too Soon. Yeah, Frank, Frank's Place is the one I was most interested in. But yeah, all of those for sure. Yeah, I mean, I was I was quite surprised by the clip that they showed from East Side, West Side of George C. Scott. Mm. Um, essentially just, you know, being quite <laughs> anti-racist in the yeah, moment. He's, he's and, ca- calling out a racist guy for being, for being racist. Yeah. Uh, and I was just like, "Wow, this was on the TV. This was on TV in mm. the sick. Oh, it got canceled. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah. So I, I over uncanceled too soon. I think this is this is some stuff that I think y'all should y'all should look into. Mm. Um, all right, that leaves one film, uh, uh, Marlon Riggs's final film, and it's actually interesting because it wasn't actually completed by him because he passed away from AIDS during the making of this movie." Um, black is black ain't. Mm. Uh, where do we start well, with this one? This one's pretty ambitious. It, it, it's really ambitious, uh, and uh, we, we do need to point out that that you know we're, we're white, and this is a film that's all yes. We have been the whole podcast. Yeah, I, I've uh, since the day I was born, and um, this is a film about black identity and the black experience and uh, as such this isn't about things that i'm meant to relate to this isn't about things that i'm meant to uh talk about or discuss on a very personal level uh this is just something where i can point to what marlon riggs has done and uh point out that i think he's doing doing something uh culturally ambitious to use your word um he is a no more than trying to in this 87 minute documentary, which he is partly narrating from his hospital bed as he's dying in the hospital. Uh, 
encapsulate the entirety of the black experience. In the United States, specifically. In, in the United States, uh, as it was in 1994 when he was making the movie, and how within the black community, uh, people were sort of trying to test each other's purity, as it were, as to what it means to be truly black, what the black experience truly means, what black is and what black ain't. Uh, and uh, he goes through uh, politics. He talks to scholars and authors and just people on the street and young kids and old people uh, from all over the country. And he you know, tries to figure out what what the common black experience is for them and uh, how it relates to him personally. Um, because as a gay man, he also points out uh, rather poignantly that there's a certain kind of very aggressive masculinity that uh, has been wrapped up in the black male identity that he was not permitted to be part of because of his sexuality. And uh, he's... Right. He's trying to point out that, you know, how how is my black experience invalidated because I'm gay? Why is homophobia part of the black experience? Surely, you know, we should we should know better than that. Um, Why is patriarchy? a part? Yeah, of pa- patriarchy is a big part of it as well. Uh, and then he gets into little details as well. Things like the kind of music you listen to. What is black music? And there's a really wonderful uh, clip of him kind of singing uh, a bunch of different genres of music and like trying to uh, mm-hmm. point out, you know, Oh, is it, is it funk? Is it reggae? Is it jazz? Is it blues? And uh, there's even one where at one point there's just a question mark yeah, it's like, what, in the intertitle. What, what, yeah. What, what is, the, what even is yeah. this? <laughs> cause, cause, cause Marlon Riggs is hilarious. He's a very funny guy. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I can say that this film is absolutely riveting. Uh, and it's very confrontational about its its themes and its ideas, especially for a film made in 1995. Uh, but yeah, he's he's confronting a lot. Uh, he's uh, talking to people like Angela Davis. Angela Davis has a lot to say in this movie. Um, but right. she's in this movie. Oh, I wanted to say I I need to I need to point this out is that in uh, this film there's a lot of uh, archival footage, mm. um, specifically around the Angela Davis character talking about the Black Panther Party back in the '60s, um, and they actually use a couple shots from Agnes Varda's documentary Black Panthers. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, anyway, so I was just watching like. Hold on a second. <laughs> that's that's yeah. that's from Agnes Varda's documentary. And anyway, so I was just I just wanted to mention that um, I didn't want to forget that. Um, so if you're an Agnes Varda nerd, then then watching this movie, you'll get that little Easter egg, mm-hmm. and it's blinking, you'll miss it. But as soon as you see it, like ah, yes. Anyway, um, there's a, a um, there was a really wonderful uh, documentary from a couple of years ago called The Black Power Mixtape, 1967 to 1975, uh, which f- heavily right. featured Angela Davis. And uh, is about the Black Panther Party, um, made by like a, a two separate teams of Swedish filmmakers, which I think is really uh, interesting. Yeah, um, <laughs> like a, a bunch of Swedish journalists uh, got some archiving footage, and then in the modern modern day, a different team of Swedish journalists edited it all together, and they made the film called The Black Power Mixtape. And uh, I really recommend that one because they talked to Angela Davis, they talked to. Uh, Stokely Carmichael and a lot of other important figures uh, from the Black Panther Party okay. during that specific period. Um, but Black is Black ain't. Uh, it isn't so much about a period in history. 
it's not trying to encapsulate the whole of the black experience. It's trying to suss it out. It's trying to figure out what the black experience uh, is supposed to mean to modern people. And, uh, and Marlon Riggs is uh, frustrated by uh, some things and deleted by other things, but is pointing out that essentially that there's not going to be a, a, a mono, a, a monolith. There's not going to be a single opinion as to what these things are. It's going to be open for interpretation and maybe we should continue to let it dissipate uh, instead of congeal. And that way we can all kind of right. start to see all of these different experiences as equally valid rather than trying to recreate a singular black experience. Right. Towards the end of the film, um, they there's conversations about the difference between unity mm. and community. Yeah. And how we don't want to ascend. We don't necessarily want just unity where we're all one thing. We want to be able to commune with all of the different aspects of of this people. Because essentially the film at the end says it's like black is it's every single person who is black mm. and and that is and it's and it's different for everyone and it's that's okay um yeah i think in terms of form uh there are there are two styles of marlon riggs films there's his um his much more um traditional traditionally uh filmed and edited stuff like no regrets which i talked about last time ethnic notions and color adjustment which are a lot more traditional in terms of form and and structure mm. um and then there's the marlon riggs more experimental work with tongues untied um affirmations anthem and and i think where i said like that tongues untied is almost like a key to like being able to go from there into all of his other work this film feels almost like the culmination i mean it is his last film but it, it really does feel like this epic i'm trying to do everything in this movie mm. and and it's incredibly ambitious and it's great. I do think, and this is just me, I think the pacing suffers a tad mm-hmm. um, where we're jumping, we're going back and forth between these explorations of patriarchy. Um, they have a, basically a whole bit about Louis Farrakhan um, in the film and like different aspects of that. And then also his own, ex- basically as he's dying, um, his own exploration of his own life and his family, um, lots of talk about gumbo. And so these very specific things and then also these very broad things. And the oscillation between them, I think, and and here's the thing, is this film wasn't completed by him. It was actually completed by his team, essentially. Mm-hmm. He, the Signifying Works team. Uh, he is the, the credited um, director on it, but yeah. Director, Right. But this was completed after his passing. Um, and so I'm not totally sure what like what all is specifically his. Um, but I can say that it's a, it's a towering work. Um, I just I just think for me, the the one thing I, the one you know criticism I had is not any of the content. It's just the pacing mm. is a little it feels longer than it is. Yeah. Um, where color adjustment went by like that. Um, this one, felt i i didn't check my watch but i was like oh this is still going <laughs> and, um, and it's short it's just because there's so yeah. much in it. it it's so much. it's really dense but it's also very short it's only 87 minutes but yeah there's a, a lot right. to confront and to think about in this 
Um, a, a film I was thinking about, I wanted to bring this up, was uh, while I was watching Black is Black Ain't, I was trying to think of other films that... Um, and, and again, this is my perspective as a white guy, but other films I have seen that at least address or talk about the black experience uh, in the modern day. And the closest I could think of uh, that related to the things that were going on in Black is Black Ain't is, weirdly enough, the film Keanu, the Key and Peele movie. Uh, because Real? that, okay. well, it's a, it's a film about... Uh, I haven't seen Key it. Key and Peele play these characters who are, uh, they're suburban nerds. They like, you know, video games and genre movies, and they're really into cats. And over the course of the movie, uh, when the cat is stolen, they have to start putting on this identity as, like, tough guys, like criminals. And we begin to see that a lot of what we perceive as modern-day black masculinity is very much tied into a lot of violent cliches that we get from media, and how the idea of uh, the black nerd is something that is... uh, separate from black culture it's uh and mm-hmm. it, it's not straightforwardly addressed but that's a big part of that movie and i think uh in terms of what this idea that the modern day black man has to behave in this sort of very aggressive way uh is something that black is black ain't also talks about very openly so um i, I don't know if key and peel ha- are familiar with marlon riggs i would hope so I hope everybody should be, just because I like I I love Marlon Riggs and what I've seen. Um, but I, I feel like they're talking about something very similar, um, a, a strange connection perhaps, but one that I I felt was yeah. legit. All right. Um. Well, and I'd just like to say that take everything that we said today regarding Marlon Riggs with a grain of salt, because again, we are we are the pasty type. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> Um, but, but I, I can say with confidence that I, I am over the past three weeks, I have had a wonderful journey going through the films of Marlon Riggs and, and I'm annoyed that he's gone. Um, Mm. I am, I wish, I wish we had had him longer. Imagine, imagine what he would be making today. Oh gosh. If he was still around. Um, so, so yeah, it's. It's, yeah, I just, yeah, the Criterion, I'm glad, he he deserved a Criterion box set. Mm-hmm. He, de- he deserves, he deserves, he deserves more than a Criterion box set. Um, yeah, this, yeah, just all the, as the further I get away from high school, the more I wish as I go through stuff like this, the more I wish I had been shown stuff like this in high school. Yeah. Because um, this is, this is where I'm getting my education about how the world works. It wasn't from... It wasn't from wasn't from my sociology class in tenth grade or whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, we're we're learning a lot more about uh, the the older you get, uh, the more you're going to learn about uh, a, a lot of you know how how good your education was and also how bad it was in a lot of ways. A lot about a lot of the deficiencies mm-hmm. about what they they did and also what they didn't teach you. Um, yeah. On on that note, I'm gonna just recommend. Um, two books that I just adore um, 
I actually got to meet the author back in 2019. Ibram um, X. Kendi wrote uh, Stamped from the Beginning and How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, both of those books actually hit the New York Times bestsellers list um, last June um, for obvious reasons. Um, but um, but anyway, but yeah, his his works essentially were essentially like a new high school history education like essentially just reframed everything that i thought i had knew about u.s history um so anyway so there you go um whitney what's up next for you on ovid what are you, what are um, you looking at well uh i was actually just uh thumbing through ovid uh, yesterday and they added a few new narratives one was called the uh history of fear uh which um okay uh looks like this is one of those films that looks like totally my jam in that uh, it's it's about uh, if, if you remember that film High Rise, which is about sort of the uh, gradual dissolution and de-evolution of people who live in a high rise essentially into uh, like savage warlords who are all killing each other. Uh, same sort of right. thing, but with like a, a suburban neighborhood. <laughs> it's like there's a heat wave and all of a sudden everybody just turns into a monster and it's called a history of fear um hmm. it um it might be a little too soon for that one um, uh, well it was made it was made in 2014 so we'll see and uh th- yeah i i know and th- then they also put up a, a brand new japanese film called vampire clay uh it was directed by a director named soichi umezawa uh it's from 2017 and they said oh it's like it's a horror comedy in the, the vein of the blob and evil dead. I was like, okay, there I'm there. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, the tagline for vampire clay is art. So bad it kills. And, uh, Oh, <laughs> that is most definitely. So okay. yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm diving into that. There's no question. And you know, whatever five hour plus film I can manage to squeeze in over the course of the next week. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, speaking of Lav Diaz, because that is who you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, Lav Diaz has a new film out. Um, he doesn't. It's I don't over know. on Projector. Oh, it's on Projector. Oh, okay. um, it's over on Projector. Right. It's it's on Projector. Um, it's streaming through uh, July seventh. Okay. Um, and that's not on Ovid, but I'm going to be watching it this week, and I'm going to be talking about it next time on on our next episode. Mm, absolutely. Um, because Yeah, it's called Genus Pan. It's only two and a half hours. Can you believe it? Oh, so he made a short. All right. Uh, yeah, he made a short film. Um, and so I'm going to be watching that. I'm also finally, this is one of the first things that popped out to me when I was going through the entire catalog that Ovid had the first time I did it. Mm. Um, Kichichiro Kawamoto is a Japanese stop-motion animation director. Um, and he has two titles on Ovid. One is um, his, a feature called The Book of the Dead, mm-hmm. um, which is from 2014, 70 minutes. And then also a collection of his short films, which mm. uh, run uh, almost 100 minutes. Um, and I think I'm going to be just enjoying some gorgeous stop-motion animation this next oh, week. Bliss. Bliss. Um, Yes. Um, so, so that's that's what I'm looking at. Obviously, there's a bunch of other stuff that I might just, you know, on a whim dive into because I can. <laughs> um, so, so I think that'll that'll pretty much do it uh, for for this week's episode of All About Ovid. Um, Whitney, mm-hmm. 
Where can people find you? Oh, golly, where can't they find me? Um, I uh, am the co-host over at the Critically Acclaimed Network, which uh, I do with one William Bibiani. Uh, we recently sort of reworked our subscription service a little bit, but we're providing pretty much all of the same things in that we're doing our Star Trek podcast, we're doing our Batman podcast, we review new films, we review Oscar-nominated films, uh, we talk about cancelled television shows, uh... Etc. 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 We even do some commentary tracks. Uh, just last night, we completed our rather epic commentary yes. <laughs> commentary track for uh, Kenneth Branagh's 1996 version of Hamlet. Uh, we we talk a lot. Uh, William gets a little distracted at the end, and he goes on off on a long tangent about the film Double Team with Jean Claude Van Damme and Dennis Rodman. Uh, well, of course, because it, and it relates back to Hamlet somehow. Um, but yeah, that was a really, really fun thing to do. We really, really love that movie, and uh, that's that's available as one of our subscription perks. Uh, yeah, go over, check us out. You can write us letters, you can talk yeah. to us, you can just listen to us talking all day. If you, if, as long as you're not sick of our voices, we'll keep on making stuff. Right. I've got um, your new episode of The Iron List queued up as we speak. Oh my goodness. Uh, about classic literature. Um uh, I will just say that I've been looking forward to this commentary track for Hamlet for a very long time, and now that both parts are out, I'm going to go Yay! for it. I'm going to do it. Dive in. It is such, um, a, such a wonderful piece of work. Yeah, I yeah love that film. Um, anyway, uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, at Blue Gray Closet. Um, I would plug the Patreon, except that it essentially no reason to anymore because all of it's coming to the main feed um over the july august and september you're gonna be getting podcasts out of your ears um yeah we're gonna we might even i don't know this is a bold statement but who knows in the month of july we might even release more podcasts than cr- the critically acclaimed now <gasps> who knows man oh man that, no. that, them's fighting words you're con- you're confronting us <laughs> no um you you guys deserve a break. Um, let someone else take the mantle of most <laughs> podcasts in a month uh, for once. Um, but yeah, in the next in the next few weeks, uh, Fridays you're gonna get Fassbender podcasts. Tuesdays you're gonna get Lucrecia Martel podcasts. Um, Thursdays you're gonna get Dorothy Arzner podcasts. Um, on I believe Mondays. Um, I'm going to be releasing uh, the extended conversations, the uncut conversations that I had with all of my co-hosts about my dinner with Andre. Um, I edited them all together, five hours of audio into one two-hour um, episode for your pod- your guys' podcast, My Dinner with My Dinner with Andre. But all of the uncut conversations are going to be coming out um, over the next three Mondays. So, like, yeah, we got a ton of stuff, man. Hmm. We got so much stuff. And it's all free now, so... You have no excuse not to listen to it anymore. Uh, we're going out with a three-month-long bang. Um, so, all right. I guess that, that'll pretty much do it. We've been going almost an hour, 20 minutes. This is another long one. I had to talk about Bergman for a while up at the top, but uh, hey, I spent a lot of money on it. I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> it's it's worth it. It's worth it. All right. Yeah. Um all right. Um, I think that'll pretty much do it for this week. So thank you very much for listening all um, because it there's a pull these days when it comes to films to focus only on the big and the mainstream stuff. So thanks for spending time with us today here on the margins. Good afternoon. <laughs>